Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. It's a pleasure to be back again with you this morning. And you know, uh, we're listening to stories, uh, stories of people who connect with Jesus and stories of people who connect with Jesus now. Stories is something we all of us love. Children love it naturally and we as adults are always game for a good story. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, tells us why. He says, the reason that story is so basic to us is that life itself has a narrative shape. Life isn't an accumulation of ideas. Life is the realization of details that all connect. Small and large are accorded equal dignity and linked together. Thus, stories aren't imposed on our lives. They invite us into their life as we enter and imaginatively participate Story brings us into more reality, expands our horizons, and sharpens our insight. And that's my invitation to you. Enter more imaginative, stretch your imaginations. Look for connection points between a story of Jesus' encounter with one of his inner circle disciples, the man we know as the Apostle Peter, and interwoven into that the story of how Jesus connected me to himself. And as a result, I trust you will get further insight into your journeys with Jesus, wherever you may be on your spiritual pilgrimage. Our story begins one day when Jesus was teaching and with his customary insight and ability to attract people. And so they were pressing in on him. And he was by a lake. And here's what happens afterwards. Let's read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish, that they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Now at one level, this is a really simple story to follow. Even a child can get all the details. Jesus did a miracle and Peter the fisherman then became a follower of Jesus. But if we look deeper, we'll see some very significant aspects to this story that may not be obvious at first reading. There are clues to the kind of transformation that God wants to accomplish in your life and my life. So follow me as we take you a little bit deep. Peter was a fisherman. Their routine was well established. They would fish all night. They'd come back in the morning, clean their catch, take it to the marketplace, and they'd get busy washing and cleaning their nets 
and getting ready for the next day's fishing. It was a hard life. It was a rigorous life, but it was also a well-predicted life. Above all, it defined who Peter was. Peter was a fisherman. I doubt very much whether he had the luxury of or the inclination to ask questions like, who am I? What's the purpose of my life? He was a fisherman, and as far as he knew, he would remain and die a fisherman along with his fisherman buddies. His encounter with Jesus took place after a night where they caught nothing. Now, Peter was disappointed undoubtedly, but he was not shocked because that was part of the life of a fisherman. He knew there were days when he would not catch anything. So he was busy mending the nets and getting ready. But he was not ready for what happened next. When Jesus said to him, let your nets down. Now, what's not in the story is what was going through Peter's mind. But it isn't hard to imagine. Peter was a fisherman. Jesus was not. <laughs> Carpenter and now a rabbi. And I can just imagine Peter. Let me get this right. He didn't say this, of course. You're a fisherman. You're a carpenter. You're telling me how to catch fish. Why don't you just stick to your preaching? But externally, at least, he seemed very respectful. He said, okay, must." We caught, we worked all night, we didn't catch any fish. But because you say so, can you just imagine the sarcasm in those words? Because you say so. Fully expecting that the nets would come up empty and the fishermen would score one over the carpenter. But of course, that's not what happened. The nets were so full, they needed other help to bring it in. The nets were breaking and the boats were sinking. And then something happens that doesn't make sense at all. It's what we call a non sequitur in Latin, which means when A, B doesn't follow A. Because Peter falls flat on his face, prostrate in confession and says, I'm a sinful man, get away from me. Now, there was nothing that Jesus said. He wasn't preaching. It wasn't a hellfire and brimstone preaching. He wasn't warning people about their sin. He wasn't calling for repentance. He wasn't even teaching. He just did a miracle that was a blessing. That's why it's a total non sequitur what happened after that. Franco Zeffelari in the six-hour movie, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, portrays this scene beautifully. One moment the camera is focusing on Peter on his knees, just raking in all the fish into those baskets, just delightfully anticipating this huge influx of money and resources. And then slowly as the camera zeroes in on him, the smile gets wiped off his face his eyes begin to widen in terror. And he said, Lord, depart from me. I don't know. Why? What happened? Peter knew there was no fish there. He was a fisherman. He knew when the fish bite and when there's no fish. If there is suddenly so much fish in a place where there never is any fish, it means they were either created on the spot or they obeyed the summons of a voice and showed up from nowhere. He fully did, didn't fully understand who this was, but he knew this man is too close to the only person in the world who can do that. He was a Jew. He was well-schooled in the scriptures. Creational monotheism was the heart of their preaching. They worshipped one God, and he was the sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And he says, get away from me, Jesus, get away from me. 
he was not a fisherman anymore he was reduced to his core identity before the lord of the universe although he didn't fully know he was he was a sinner now how did jesus respond to it now before we look at what jesus said because we know what he said look at what he didn't say he didn't say was what many people who and somewhere another become aware of their sinfulness hear from their spiritual directors and counselors and sometimes even pastors peter stop with all this sin business what's the matter with you get up off your feet don't you know you're a human being made in the image of god you have real potential peter so get up and do something with your none of this victim business and a 20th century version would say haven't you read i am okay and you're okay and if you didn't like that book didn't you read i am not okay you're not okay and that's okay <laughs> i mean these were actual titles of books 10 15 years ago he didn't say anything like that he also didn't say the opposite he didn't say about time you got it peter you are a sinner there's nothing i can do with you he didn't say either one of those things instead to a man who had brought his core identity down to being a sinner he said i'm going to make you a fisher of men peter you have a new identity and from that day peter and his followers left their job abandoned their business and followed jesus fast forward to 21st century ajax few hundred people gathered here in this room you and i are unique individuals no two one of us like and the holy spirit is infinitely creative So every story that he weaves of his encounter with you is going to be unique. But Bible stories, especially the ones that involve an encounter with Jesus, come with some handles on them. Handles that allow us to connect our story with that story and therefore gain more illumination and insight into our own stories. So I want to walk you through four such handles in this story. The first one is divine initiative. Look at the number of things that had to happen in this story that were completely outside Peter's control. Jesus showed up where Peter was washing the nets. He got into a boat, he chose Peter's boat. He finished telling his teaching, then he said put out into the deep, and then he told Peter to drop the nets. And then he made sure the fish were there. Now yes but Peter had to respond but divine initiative is written all over this That's the way it happened with me I was born in the southern part of India but grew up in the northern part where my dad worked for the government of India from a south indian brahmin caste which is one of the highest castes in there the literate uh, priestly caste and yet lived in new delhi india the northern part of the country the any christian influence in india was in the southern part north india was a spiritual wilderness and so here i was a south indian brahmin living in spiritual wilderness of north india the most unlikely candidate to ever hear the gospel and if i heard it to respond to it this was all long before praying for the india and other countries became part of the huge 1040 window emphasis i was had a happy childhood I did well in school I loved to study I loved to play games I had a circle of six friends we all grew up in the same uh, civil servant quarters our fathers all worked for the government We didn't have too much money we didn't have too little money All the factors conspired to a very happy fulfilled life I had no needs Any preaching based on needs would never have touched me 
but God was at work and I wasn't even aware of it. Many of you know Ravi Zacharias is my brother-in-law. Ravi and I grew up together. His dad and my dad both worked for the government. And Ravi's two sisters used to be in the public school system and when she was about, when Sham was about 15, her parents decided to move her to, to the closest thing to a Christian school. And their Youth for Christ had a Bible club once a week and everybody who came from a Christian background, in their case nominal Anglican, had to go. And so in one of these times, uh, the director, uh, president of Youth for Christ International from the state, Sam Walgamuth by name, showed up and he gave a talk and uh, at the end of it, he did what was very customary in the evangelical circles. We didn't know anything about that. He said, all heads bowed, all eyes closed. Now, my wife came from an Anglican background where she didn't know any of these things. And being a bit of a rebel at heart, she said, I didn't close my eyes. I want to look around to see what people were going to do. <laughs> and so this man said, if anyone wants to give their life to Jesus, can you put up their hand? And nobody did. And Sham said, this man's going to go back to America with a terrible idea of Indians, you know. So disrespectful. So she put up her hand. <laughs> and of course, they all jumped on this new convert, right? And of course, she could sing too. And so they said, you sing for our next rally. So September of that year, she sang at this rally. And she, came, she was coming back from this rally. Ravi and I were in the backyard of the house just chatting. And so she was all dressed up. So Ravi said to her, where are you coming from? Well, I came from this rally. Oh, Ravi was really nice, very interesting. Well, neither one of us were interested in that stuff. Uh, and then she said, and with some really nice food to eat afterwards. Now she had our interest, okay? <laughs> so we said, when's the next rally? October. Okay, we're coming to October rally. <laughs> so we went. Ravi went. I went. Three of our friends went. We sat way up in the back and uh, didn't really behave very well. <laughs> we were making fun of the singer. We were passing comments on the anatomy of the interpreter. We laughed during the sermon. When the offering plate went by, we seriously contemplated whether we should take some money out of it. <laughs> I mean, God must have a sense of humor looking down at me and Ravi said, if only these two guys knew what I have in mind for them. Because <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know anything. So anyway, the, we endured the rally and then Ravi went to Shams and go find out when we're going to eat. So off she goes to the Youth for Christ director and she says, oh, I guess we're going to eat now. Well, eat? What do you mean? But do remember last time? Oh, that we only do for the first rally every year. <laughs> right, you got it. So, utterly disappointed, but God was still at work. We were introduced to the New Delhi Director of Youth for Christ. His name was uh, Freddie David. Unbeknownst to us, see, God's hand again. Unbeknownst to us, Freddie and the Central Asia Director of Youth for Christ, a Canadian gentleman by the name of, missionary by the name of John Tate, had just spent the previous evening, uh, uh, previous month, I should say, at a coffee shop in downtown New Delhi, discussing strategies on how to reach the English-speaking subculture teenagers, <laughs> meaning me, Ravi, and others like that. And so they started a Monday night club called Tammy Club. Teens and 20s are most important. And so I began attending that every Monday, even though I was in university at that time. We had to live on the dormitory, but it was still in the same city in New Delhi. And on January the 11th, 1963, three months after that first rally in October, on a Monday night meeting, the director of Youth for Christ, India, a South Indian like me, shared the gospel. And at the end of it, I put up my hand. And an engineer who was there, and I was studying engineering at that time, was the one who kind of counseled me. I think I kind of might have prayed the sinner's prayer, I don't remember. But he gave me a Bible take with me and read. 
Here's the story. Look at the number of things that had to happen that I had no control of, all starting with two girls being moved from one school to the other. That started the whole ball roll. Divine initiative all over the place. And as I took away this Bible, and uh, I hid it under my pillow, I mean, I was, uh, didn't want any of my friends in, in the dormitory to know that I was uh, interested in reading the Bible and stuff. So I would read it secretly at night. And as I did, I, the next handle began to work, and that is the realization of who Jesus was. That was the second thing that happened to Peter. Now, many people, probably here too, many people in our country think Jesus was a great leader, great teacher. He's venerated in a country like India. Uh, the movie, The Last Temptation of Christ by Scorsese, was banned in the country of India, even though it was shown here. This is a supposedly Christian country. In India it was because of the veneration of Jesus as a, as a teacher. I grew up in a, reading the stories, the well-known stories about, in the Bible. Um, Daniel and his lion's den, Jesus and uh, Joseph and the coat of many colors, and Noah's ark, and stuff like that. And as far as I knew, Jesus was a great teacher. In my school, I had Christian friends and Hindu friends and, and Islamic friends. We didn't, take, we didn't think in terms of a religion. We were all Indians, primarily. We knew all these stories. So Jesus was a great teacher. But, but Peter had to realize that. He began by saying, Master, Rabbi. He ended that first day by saying, Lord. Now, he didn't fully understand what Lord meant, but the Greek word kurios, translated Lord, is the word that is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to translate Yahweh, Jehovah. So Peter knew this was a lot more than just a rabbi. But as Peter hung around Jesus, two more years passed. They listened to a lot of Jesus preaching and teaching. They walked with him on long journeys. Everything went by foot. Life was a lot slower. They had meals together. Gathered around a fire at night asking questions. Continuing to learn more and more about this person who had fascinated him. Public opinion was beginning to harden and shape. And so Jesus asked this question in Matthew chapter 16. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, we often make the mistake of thinking that Christ is part of Jesus' name. Jesus Christ, Jesus is the name, Christ is the title. It is the Greek word for anointing, from which we get the Old Testament word Messiah. It's all the same thing. So what he was basically saying is, you are Jesus Messiah. You are the Messiah. And for the, even the most elementary Jewish mind, saturated in their history and their scriptures, they poured a wealth of meaning into that word Messiah. Probably for some it went all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where God said, to the, to the Satan who had tempted the first man and woman, he said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. One of Eve's descendants will destroy the enemy. Abraham, when God called him and said, I will bless you, you will be blessed, and through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. A unique descendant of Abraham will bring blessing to the nations of the world. The Davidic covenant promised to King David God said, 
one of your sons will always sit on the throne. He will be my son and I will be his father. Psalm 2 took those words and applied them prophetically to, to the Messiah when he would come. Isaiah talked about the suffering servant who would also come as anointed conqueror. And so they were waiting. They were waiting for Messiah who would come and deliver them. 500 years they'd been in captivity, first from Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, and for a brief period of freedom under the Maccabean rulers before cruel Rome took over. They had not been a free people for over 500 years. And they were waiting, waiting, waiting for the Messiah. All that or some portion of it was poured into this statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. David, um, G Peter was increasing in his understanding of Jesus was. By the way, even this required divine initiative because in the very next verse, Jesus says this and Simon, Jesus answered him, blessed are you Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So that happened to me too. As I continued reading that Bible back in my uh, undergraduate uh, dorm, I began to discover some things about Jesus. Now, he wasn't just a great teacher. At least he claimed to be a lot more than that. He, he had these unique claims as Savior and Lord upon the lives of the people. Well, that first year passed, and then every May of June, the Youth for Christ had a summer camp in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. Because by May, when school ended, it got really hot. In New Delhi, 115, 170 degrees Fahrenheit, which would be about 44, 45 degrees, and that's without any humidity. And so we were off at this camp for 10 days. And every evening we would hear uh, some Youth for Christ leaders speak about Jesus. Now, I was being trained to be an engineer. My mind was basically oriented uh, to logic and thinking. And so I was basically processing everything that I was learning through, through the grid of reason and intellect and understanding. And all of a sudden, I think it was a Wednesday, but I remember the date, May 21st. As the teaching was over, the song leader began to sing a, a song that Billy Graham's crusades had popularized, Just As I Am Without One Plea. And John Tabe, the Central Asian Director of Youth for Christ, said, if anyone wants to give their life to Jesus, just come forward. Up till, the, up till that moment, I was engaged totally in my mind. At the moment when I heard that invitation, something began to really thumb. My heart began to beat fast, and I knew I had to go to the front. I knelt down, and John knelt next to me, and, and my brother-in-law, Ravi, came right up with me. We were there together. And he said, if the tears flow, let them start flowing. And I was just sobbing. That night, Jesus had become Savior in my life. So a journey that began January 21st, that first stage was completed on May the 21st. After I came back from that camp, I was waiting one day for Ravi to come on out for us to play, and there was this big uh, um, stack of Bibles, uh, books that had to be thrown out. And I was just passing the time, and I picked up one of them. It, had to be, it was a commentary on the book of Romans. And so I began to read it, and I just loved what I was reading. To this day, I'm so thankful. Here's sovereignty once again. That was a book written by a, a Welsh evangelical named Griffith Thomas. If that commentary had been on Romans had been written by some liberal scholar, I don't know where I'd be today. But I was so fascinated by what I was learning 
There was so much more about this Jesus to learn that I took it back with me and I kept reading. And as I kept reading it, I began to understand the third handle in that story with Peter. Not only a realization of who Jesus is, but I also realized who I was, a sinner. Now, that's sin, sin's a bad word in our society. It, it, understand, it conjures up all the worst kind of experience that, that we may have had, either of hellfire and brimstone preacher, preaching or guilt manipulation kind of stuff in churches and on, by the televangelists that we might have encountered and whatnot. And I understand that. But, but listen, somewhere in our journey with Jesus, we have to reach the point where Peter reached in his understandings, where you understand a, your core identity before a holy God as being a sin. But precisely because of all these unhelpful overtones and baggage that comes along with the popular understanding of sin, let me just take a second look at it. Still thoroughly biblical, but in a way that perhaps may help us more to get past those blocks. Think of, think of us in our physical situation, when something maybe have gone wrong with us. Maybe some, there might be some here uh, who had some symptoms and couldn't get a handle on it. People had various ideas of what it might be. You even went to a doctor and your family doctor didn't quite know what it was. Ah, it could be this, it could be that. I'll think I'll send you off to a specialist and they do all kinds of tests until finally that day comes and they say, we know what it is. Now, some cases of the news may be bad. It could be cancer, but may not be. But whatever it is, when something is named, there is a certain sense of freedom that comes. At least there's hope. Now we can treat it. Imagine trying to treat symptoms when you don't know what it is you're likely to get the wrong medication and get things worse. So we know from the physical realm that when a name is put to a problem, it's actually freeing and bringing hope. Well, that's what the word sin is. It's, it's God's word to put a name on what we all know is wrong. Every one of us knows that we live in a world where something is seriously wrong. We know that. There isn't a single person here. It's naive optimism to think anything else about this world that we live in. And I think if we're honest, we'd also say, and I wish I could be better. We want a new world, and we want a new you. That's why we make resolutions. That's why we rationalize some of our behavior. Well, sin is the diagnosis of what is wrong with the world and what is wrong with you and what's wrong with me. G.K. <laughs> Chesterton once responded to a magnificent article, Time Magazine had a lead article on what's wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton in his inimitable style in the letters to the editor said, regarding your article, what is wrong with the world, I am your sincerely G.K. Chesterton. He got it right. So what is it? Look at it this way. Sin, sin is not doing bad things. That's what we normally think of. Tim Keller put it so well when he said, no, Tim is taking good things and making them into God. Sin is taking something else and everything else in this world is created by God is taking something that God created and making it ultimate when it's only God is ultimate. This was the essence of the first temptation. What, what did Satan say to Adam and Eve? Basically, you can't believe God. You can't trust that God is good. He's actually jealous. He doesn't want you to become like him. He's a jealous God. You can't trust that God is good and you cannot trust that he, him to give you what is good. So you independently determine what is good and then go and get it. So that's the fundamental temptation. The essence of sin 
is an attitude of independence that says to God, I can't trust you that you are good, and I can't trust that you will give me what is good, so I have to determine what is good, and I have to go after it to get it. That's the essence. That's why, ultimately, there are no such thing called degrees of sin. Now, you might say, oh, come on, just a minute, Sundar. I'm not a child molester. I'm not a sex trafficker. I'm not a Ponzi scheme guy that takes people, takes a life saving out of people. Now that's true. At the behavioral level, there's all kinds of differences, but there is no difference in the heart condition from which those things flow. Or to put it another way, given the right circumstances, there is no sin that any one of us is incapable of doing. You remember the show 60 Minutes, few, several, couple of decades ago, Mike Wallace was the guy who used to host it. And on one of the 60-minute episodes, Charles Colson tells the story. They interviewed a Jewish concentration camp survivor by the name of Yehiel Dinyo. So Dinyo was on the set with Wallace, and as part of the interview, they broke away to a clip of the Nuremberg trials. And in that Nuremberg trials, he had a clip of Dinyo walking in. He was one of the witnesses at Adolf Eichmann's trial of Dinyo walking in, and he saw Eichmann in the dock. And when he saw that, Dinyo just fell to the ground and sobbed uncontrollably. So Wallace shows him that clip and asks Denier, what happened to you at that time? When you saw Eichmann for the first time, were you filled with anger and hatred? Was that the memory of all the pain uh, of the concentration camp? Denier's answer blew him away. He said, it was none of those things. He said, way back then in the concentration camps, Eichmann was a demigod. He controlled our fate. Who lived, who died, what happened to us? He said, when I walked into that courtroom that day and I saw the man in the dock, I realized he was an ordinary man. And then he said, I suddenly realized that I was capable of everything that he did. And he closed with these chilling words, Adolf Eichmann lives in all of us. He said, that's what drove me to the ground. He's absolutely right. Given the right conditions, there's nothing that our sinful hearts cannot produce. That's, the, that's why we need to understand what our core identity is. This is where repentance comes in, and repentance is a good word too, for exactly the same reason. Repentance is simply agreeing, going back to the physical analogy, simply agreeing with the doctor, you know better than me, yeah, okay, that's what I have, okay, that's, that's true, I agree with it. Repentance is basically agreeing with God's view of ourselves. One man put it this way, he said, in Jesus' hands, repentance is an invitation, not a threat. It's a promise, not a curse. It's good news, not bad. To repent means to see things God's way, to align ourselves with God's purposes. And notice this, and I'll unpack the sentence for you. Initial alignment is violent and dramatic. That's what happened to Peter. A 180 degree turn. That's why we call it conversion, which in Latin means turning from and turning towards, 180 degrees. But after that, it's mostly mid-course corrections. 15 degrees here, 5 degrees there. At every turn, by whatever degree it is good news, every turn moves us closer to where we want to be. Thus, repentance is initial realization. Repentance is a continuing lifestyle. And because the picture is worth a thousand words, let me illustrate this graphically for you. Take a look at that line. That white arrow on the left is your journey until you first encountered the cross, wherever and however that happened. And you realized your sinfulness, God's holiness, you trusted in Jesus for your salvation. Here's what should happen. The top line is the holiness of God. Now, God's holiness doesn't increase. He's unchangeably holy. But our realization of how holy God is continues to increase. If we are studying the Bible, if we are reading books and listening to sermons and being well taught, we realize, oh my goodness, I had no idea what infinite holiness is like. So our understanding of God's holiness keeps increasing. 
In the same way, the bottom line is our sinfulness. We don't necessarily get more sinful. In fact, we are, if we are obedient, getting more holy, more obedient, more aware, um, experiencing the victory of Jesus, but our awareness of our sinfulness keeps increasing, like, like when Dinior walked into that camp. So, the perceived gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness gets larger over time if things are moving properly. We become increasingly aware of the holiness of God. We become increasingly aware of our sinfulness. Get what happens to the gap that the cross closed. The cross gets bigger and bigger. And so we keep singing amazing grace, amazing grace, amazing grace. It's more and more and more amazing. That's why we sang this morning, you're the giver of grace. You're the giver of grace to us. But here's what unfortunately does happen. That's what should happen. Here's what happens. Take that top line. As we become increasingly aware of God's holiness, we fall into two dangers that both work at the same time. One is we start performing for God. Like the, you heard this prodigal son story last week, I think. The elder brother there who doesn't usually get featured is probably in many ways the real uh, character in the story. He, he was all the goody, goody, shushud guy. He did everything. He said, Dad, I did everything you wanted, but you didn't give me anything. Would we try to close the gap between us and God's holiness by performing? I'll go to church more, I'll read the Bible more, I'll give more, I'll do this, I'll do penance, whatever. That's performing. And so we try to keep that line horizontal. On the other side, when we encounter our own sinfulness, usually it shows up in our relationships, we pretend. Why am I really that bad? Look at that person out there. I'm so much better than that guy. You should have seen him. And so we deflect blame, counterattack, blame shifting, all those things happen. And so we pretend and close that gap. So instead of the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness gets larger, our combined work of performing and pretending gets smaller and smaller, and the cross gets less and less amazing. A repentant lifestyle basically abandons both performing and pretending. When I say abandons performing, I don't mean we stop being good and holy and loving. We just don't trust in that anymore to make us acceptable to a holy God. We continue to trust in his undeserved mercy, grace, and kindness, and the enabling grace to, to live that way. And we certainly stop pretending, and every revelation of our insight. In fact, we pray for that. That's why the psalmist said, search me, O God. Know my heart. In Psalm 19, he says, who knows his hidden faults? Keep me from my secret sins. Uh, that's why in, in that video we talked about that freedom course where they said we keep things hidden but freedom comes in finding out what it's like. So repentance become a continued lifestyle. So as we do that, as we do that, we come to the fourth and the final handle. Not only divine initiative, not only a realization of who Jesus is, not only a realization of who we are, but a response of faith that follows Jesus to progressively realize our new identity. I experienced this way. Remember that book on Romans that I found out? Not only was I fascinated by what I was learning, I began to experience this desire to teach other people. So I went to the Youth for Christ director and said, I'd like to start a Bible study. Man, I've been a Christian two months. He said, really? What do you want to teach? I said, I want to teach the book of Romans. And talk about divine sovereignty to, his, uh, to my amazement and, and to this day amazement. He said, yeah, sure, go ahead, do it. He didn't ask me what makes me think I knew anything about that stuff. So I just read this book and taught whatever it was. And to my absolute shock, people seemed to like it. I didn't know it then. I hadn't been taught anything about spiritual gifts or divine calling or anything. But that was the beginning of my becoming a fisher of men. 
That's when God, dis- God kick-started my, my love for God's Word, my preaching and teaching. It took different shapes and it eventually ended up teaching the Bible for 36 years in one church in this city. And I've been doing it for 55 years since that day by God's mercy and grace. Your details will be different in your case. But every one of us has that role to play in deepening God's work in us and broadcasting God's word to the nations of the world. So as I draw this message to a close, I want to invite you to reflect on those four handles as you connect your story to God's story. First of all, divine initiative. Those of you who are Christ followers, pause and think for a moment. How many things had to happen in your life that were outside your control to get you to that point where you became a follower of Jesus? Think about it and thank him for that. And for those of you who are on that journey yet, think of the things that had to happen to get you here today. Especially this is your first time. Yes, you made a choice to come. But think of the other factors that you had no choice of. And continue to come. Continue to trust that initiative. Keep responding to divine initiative. Secondly, a realization of who Jesus is. In this story, he was the sovereign Lord who created. My Christian brother or sister, is there anything in your life right now where you say, boy, I I would love a fresh infusion of creative power? Is there a region of your life, your experience, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your work, maybe it's some other relationship, maybe it's, maybe it's your work in the church where you say, I want life. Well, ask him to do it for you. Ask Jesus, the creator of the universe, to create something new. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, ask him to do some creative invasion in your life. Not so you will have some spine-tingling miracle to talk about that will satisfy your curiosity. Jesus doesn't do miracles to satisfy people's curiosity. But if you want him to do something, some, a creative work in your life that will make your jaws drop and say, my goodness, this Jesus isn't just a great teacher. He might just be who the Bible says he is. Then ask him for it. And then thirdly, a realization who you are as sinners. Both those on a journey towards Christ and those who have been there. Abandoned pretending. Abandoned performing. Embrace Jesus. And then finally, the progressive realization of a new calling. For those of you who are already on that way, fully engaged in mission, keep at it. Keep at it. You, your, your sphere of influence will just keep increasing and your joy will get louder because let me tell you something, one of the keys to joy in a joyless society, both inside and outside the church, is doing what Jesus meant you to do. I never feel more joyful and more alive as when I'm preaching. That's why I don't stop. Yours might be different, but don't stop. And if you're on the sidelines and you haven't yet got onto the playing field, you, you heard that invitation today. Come September, plunge in. Share the work. Find out how God is wide. And for those of you who are still on the journey to Christ, you have been made for a very special purpose. You have been uniquely wired, uniquely fashioned, unique life experiences, unique personality, unique giftedness to make an impact. And until you do that, you will never find full satisfaction. So continue to move towards that. And this morning we have so appropriately uh, an opportunity to celebrate communion. This will be a come to the front and share morning. And as you do, 
an invitation again. Come, come afresh in amazement to the cross. That's what you're celebrating, this cross. This can become so ho-hum, right? Once a month we do this. Now I hope it never becomes ho-hum. As you come, think about that, those two lines. Think about the holiness of God. Think about our own sinfulness. Abandon performance, abandon pretending and embrace Jesus all over again. Either for the first time or again, you're welcome. But if you're on that journey and you're not yet to, to that point, you're only in the beginning stages of that Peter journey, it's perfectly okay for you to remain in your seats. So the table is open. People are here to serve you. Come. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.